Blog Talk Radio. Building in Minnesota, overlooking the frozen windswept plains from which sweet reason flows out like the mighty Mississippi. It is Blog Talk Radio, heading right radio with Captain Quarters, Ed Morrissey. Welcome to Heading Right Radio. This is Ed Morrissey of Captain's Quarters. My blog can be found at captainsquartersblog.com, captainsquartersblog.com. I am the political director of Blog Talk Radio one of a number of conservative talk show hosts that blog regularly at Heading Right. That's our group blog for conservative talk show hosts, and you can find that at HeadingRight.com, HeadingRight.com. We have a great show for you today. As you know, if you are here, this is a special time for us. It's uh, 5 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Eastern time, normally a little earlier in the afternoon, but we've got a great guest on for the second half of the show. That's Governor Mike Huckabee the hottest political property in Iowa, and possibly the hottest political property in the United States at this particular moment in time. He is surging in the polls across the nation. Uh, we're going to find out uh, what makes uh, Governor Huckabee tick. He's been a guest of ours a couple of times in the past on recorded segments. This will be his first time live with us on Blog Talk Radio. Excuse me, on Heading Right Radio. And um, he has been live. He actually had his own channel on Blog Talk Radio. You can have your own channel on Blog Talk Radio as well. All you have to do is go to blogtalkradio.com. Sign in. Pick a topic. Any topic can be politics, can be, can be sports, can be uh, hobbies, can be anything that you have a passion for. If you've got a passion for it, thousands of people do too. They want to hear you. They want to interact with you, and they can do that at blogtalkradio.com. You're already there. All you need to do is sign up. Uh, for the second half, we will be speaking with Governor Mike Huckabee. Governor Mike Huckabee will be joining us, and I believe we might have him on the line now. Governor, are you with us? Yes, sir, Ed. How are you? Uh, I am doing tremendous, and thank you very much for being with us. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you back on, on uh, Heading Right Radio. And I know you're a busy man, and we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Well, it was great to be uh, with you the first time. It's always even better to be invited back, so thank you for having me. Well, and actually, there's a big difference now between when we had you on the last time and when we have you on now. Now you're a you're a top tier candidate, and I want to ask you, what's it feel like? How's it how's it feel to be leading in Iowa and really being part of the uh, part of the uh, biggest uh, the biggest story in politics right now? Well, the good news is that people are taking the candidacy seriously. They realize that I actually could win, not just the nomination, but the White House. The bad news is that. Uh, Obviously, the people who have spent tens of millions of dollars to be behind me uh, are not happy about it and uh, are basically pulling out every sharp object in the kitchen. But that's part of politics is what you expect. I just have to believe that the people of this country want a president who is for something, not just uh, willing to elect somebody who can tell you what's wrong with the other guy. You know, Governor, one of the people in our chat room says that dogs don't bark at parked cars. I, I love that. I, I love that, too, and I told him I was going to steal it so I could use it with you because I knew you would appreciate that. Oh, not only appreciate it, I plan to steal it from you and use it all over the trail, so you'll hear it again. That sounds great. You you have my permission. I, I, I'd be thrilled if you did. Uh, but uh, what is it like to be in the center of this of this uh, storm of criticism? Have you Were you prepared for that? Were you prepared for the volume and intensity that, of the criticism that you've been receiving? Oh, absolutely. It, it's... Nothing that I haven't faced uh, when I was in Arkansas. Uh, you got to remember the media, obviously, was not that fond of a 
Republican and Christian guy running for office, and then you add to that the fact that 90% of the elected officials in my state, literally 90%, were Democrats. And the last thing they wanted to see was a guy who was a Republican who actually started winning elections, something that had only happened three times statewide in 150 years until I got elected lieutenant governor and then re-elected and then twice elected governor. Uh, so it, it's all stuff I've faced before. Every one of these issues that uh, Mitt Romney is throwing at me and doing press conferences and negative ads and mail pieces as well as Fred Thompson, every bit of it is stuff that has been hashed and rehashed, but it's just a new set of people who are doing political dumpster diving and going back to see if there's anything they can find. I mean, Mitt Romney had a crew of 10 people, a uh, television crew, back in my hometown of Hope, Arkansas this week, digging around to see could they... I don't know what they were looking for, honestly, but uh, frankly, I hope they talked to all the people who knew me. I'm uh, not that worried that they're going to dig up something that's all that uh, terrible. Well, and of course, these criticisms have been have been floating around, like you said, for quite a few years. They, you're, you're an experienced campaigner. You're somebody who knows what a, what a political campaign looks like. You've been you've run and won uh, governor races in Arkansas three times. So these are obviously not it's obviously not new territory for you. Uh, but um, let's take a, let's take a, a walk through just a few of these because I just want to get your response back on these. There's been some criticisms about your clemency record. There's one specific case where where the, the parole board uh, set free somebody who, who went on to murder somebody. But uh, you know people have been talking about your clemency record and that you 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 pardoned quite a few people in Arkansas a little bit more than than people might have expected. Uh, how does that? Uh, what goes through your mind when you're when you're dealing with those issues? Because that is a very unique position to be in, and there must be a lot of pressure on you going both directions. Well, there um, is working with these people, and Ed, part of it is it's a very complicated issue, particularly that case because it, it lasted over a uh, you know twelve fifteen year period. Bottom line of it is that I mean everybody feels awful. The guy shouldn't have gotten out, uh, but he did. He got out because the parole board uh, had the authority to do it based on a commutation from uh, the board that had been appointed by Jim Guy Tucker and Bill Clinton. Uh, governors don't parole people, and governors can't stop a parole in Arkansas, but it happened on my watch. I had actually denied not one but four different clemencies for Wayne Dumont. Now, I did support the parole board's decision, and so I, I do have responsibility for that, and I wished I didn't, but I didn't have an, uh, an action as a governor to do it. But when people talk about the clemency record, here's what they need to know. The crime rate went down in my state in the ten and a half years I was governor. Violent crime and other crimes. In addition to that, nobody can call me soft on crime. This is no Willie Horton deal because Michael Dukakis was weak on crime. I carried out more executions in my state than any governor in the history of the state. That's hardly going to be qualifying for soft on crime. Let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, you're, you're a person who's a, a minister, you're a Christian minister. How difficult was it for you to, to deal with petitions for commutation of, of death sentences? I mean, again, you're in a very unique position. You're the last stop uh, before the execution, and that, that is a difficult position. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about what that's like and, and the pressures, again, that you face on that. That is the most difficult thing that uh, I ever had to deal with as a governor because it was the one decision I made in carrying out the death penalty that was irrevocable. Every other decision, whether it was to cut a tax or to uh, add a number of days of school, anything that we did, we could always go back and change it. When you carry out an execution, it's the one decision that cannot be uh, given a do-over. 
and so you better be right. It was my practice to read every page of every document in the entire file of an inmate before we did it. Uh, that may be unusual, but I felt that it was part of the responsibility. That often involved boxes, several boxes filled with file folders, from the crime scene photos to the autopsy reports to the entire trial transcripts. Uh, the reason that there were uh, commutations in my tenure was because, unlike sometimes governors who simply say, look, there's no political value in doing a commutation, and Ed, there isn't. If I would wanted to play politics with those decisions, I would have never done one, not one. Nobody ever gets in trouble for denying. You only get in trouble for granting. But let me give you an example. There was uh, one young man. He was uh, 26 years old. When he was 17, he had been in a joyride with some other kids. He was along for the ride, wasn't the driver, but he was with them, so he got charged. He wanted to go to school to be a chef. He couldn't get into the school because he had had a felony conviction based on that 17-year-old act as a joyride kid. Now, do we really want to punish that kid for the rest of his life and not let him get an education and become uh, a person with a craft and a skill and earn money? I don't think so. And if that were your son or my son, you would hope that the system would make allowances uh, for that type of situation. Most, uh, all of the clemencies, not all, but most of them dealt with people who were 35 years old who had written a hot check when they were 19. They now couldn't get a job even to empty a bedpan in the nursing home, and the only way they could would, would be to get a, a, a clemency so that their record would be removed and they would be able to uh, pass a background check. Uh, how long do you punish people for something that is a, essentially a nonviolent juvenile-type crime? And that's really most of it. So when Mitt Romney throws these numbers out, you know, sometimes I say, if I'd have known then that I was going to run for president and I was more interested in my political future than taking my job seriously and being responsible and operating with integrity, I wouldn't have ever, I would never have done a clemency. But I, I believe that I can put my head on the pillow at night and know before God that I took my job seriously and I did what I thought was the right thing, not what was the politically best thing for me. And earlier this week, um, just actually yesterday, you apologized to Mitt Romney for a remark that you made to the New York Times. First off, I have to tell you that as somebody who's been burned by talking to the New York Times before, uh, welcome to the club. I, I know exactly, I know exactly how you feel. Um, I, I did a 30-minute interview and I got one sentence. I got a one-sentence quote that made me look like an idiot. And, uh, and and to be honest with you, Governor Huckabee, I don't need that much help to be looking like an idiot. You can Nor do I. Uh, but uh, but I think that you know you turn something that was being very being uh, very heavily criticized into into something of a plus. I think that you have a a quality that that people tend to tend to feel that you're a, a very sincere person. And when you when you stand up and apologize, I think it carries some weight. Do you? Do you I mean. Why don't you tell a little bit about that, because I'm not sure if everybody's already heard about the apology. Well, Ed, the context was a New York Times reporter writing for this weekend Sunday magazine. Uh, you know, we in all visited over several hours. There was an 8,100-word story that will be coming out this weekend. The Associated Press lifted 10 words out of it, and it were words that were posed in a question. The reporter was trying to get me to say something about Mormonism. The truth is, I'm not that well-versed on it. I didn't know, and I wasn't going to take the bait and start coming. And my comment was, I, I can talk about my Baptist faith, can answer questions about that, but I just don't think it's appropriate for me to try to discuss the Mormon faith. He actually knew more about it than I did uh, in the course of the discussion. I asked, I said something like that, you know, is it true that uh, do, do Mormons believe that, that Jesus and Satan were brothers originally? And it wasn't meant to be 
uh, a smear. It wasn't meant to be. It was an honest, innocent question. Um, went on. It, it wasn't even a major part of the conversation. Well, it was put in the story. Um, Associated Press lifted it out, tried to portray that I was making allegations about uh, dis- or disparaging comments about the Mormon faith. That was not my intent. I felt I had a responsibility to look Mitt Romney in the eye and tell him that I was sorry. I was sorry that it created any hurt for him. I was sorry that, that it was taken in a way that was uh, denigrating to his faith. And I wanted him to know from me, first person, uh, that I not only apologized, but I went on to tell him that I didn't think his being a Mormon would make him more or less qualified to be president, and it shouldn't have anything to do with whether people voted for him or not. And I really believe that. And I wanted them to hear it from me and not, uh, you know, in some press release. And and he took it very graciously. Apparently you were telling, um, I believe, Fox News that he, he accepted it very graciously. Yes. Uh, let's talk a little bit. Uh, in fact, let's go to a, the phone calls, because we have calls that are queuing up. People want to talk to you, Governor Huckabee. And I'm going to go ahead and take uh, Jazz from New York. Go ahead, Jazz. Uh, good evening, Governor. Hi. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Well, same here. Um, I'll try to make this quick. There, And this ties in very well with Ed's last question. There's been more attention paid during this campaign season to than anyone that I can remember about the religious beliefs and stands of the various candidates. And there was one comment that uh, this I know you've addressed this in state races before, going back to 1998, to one particular comment that was made for one of the Baptist conventions. Um and first of all, I want to say, without taking up too much Ed's time, I really liked your answer that you gave about women's rights, about standing on your record of how you had appointed uh, a very large number of women and, in fact, other minorities to important positions. But this question does come up, and it came up at home. And I wanted to ask if you could, if it's appropriate to ask Mitt Romney about his Mormon faith. Uh, first, is it appropriate to ask you about your Baptist faith, and if so, the question that came up here was in regard to that specific quote that was made that uh, was in terms of uh, the wife submitting to her husband's leadership as the church uh, submits to uh, Jesus' headship. Um, Is that an appropriate question to ask, and could you interpret that for some of us who, as in my case, as Ed knows, is someone who is married to a somewhat more liberal feminist woman who is considering her vote and you know uh there's a few other things about the baptist faith like you always hear things like well it's a sin to dance and she asked me you know well will uh the governor be dancing with his wife as inaugural ball if he's elected <laughs> well we did it uh the gubernatorial inauguration i'm actually the bass guitar player in a rock band so i don't think that should be a big problem <laughs> um you know interestingly i think i've been asked far more in-depth questions about my faith than Mitt Romney or anybody else has. Look at the debates. I got all the God questions. Look at the interviews that I have with uh, national press people. They always want to get into nuances about the particular doctrines of the Baptist Church. I've been put on the spot far more than any other person running for president, Democrat or Republican, not just about the general broad themes of my faith, but the very detailed specifics. So I really find it a little bit interesting that uh, some of the national press will talk about uh, you know, Mitt Romney defending his Mormonism. I'm thinking, well, you know, quit asking me these detailed questions unless you're going to ask him. And if you're going to ask me, then ask everybody, not just the two of us, but all candidates. Because all of us probably have some faith and practice it. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to answer questions about mine. I'm, not certain, I'm certainly not ashamed of it. 
but I just think that people ought to look at the fact that I'm running for president based on a record that I have as a governor where we built roads, improved education, transformed our health care system. We did an enormous uh, amount to transform the care of our natural resources. That's why people should elect me president, not because I'm a Baptist. Well, and it's it's interesting. Uh, I guess it's interesting to people to, to, to debate out religion, but do you think that it's really been, it, it receives far too much focus in terms of uh, political choices? It, it does. I think it's important for people to know, do we have a, a core values, uh, convictions, do we have uh, deep beliefs? What's our framework? I think that's fine. But once we've answered it, I think then delving into uh, what you believe about uh, baptism or uh, you know, communion, I mean, those things are irrelevant to being president, whether it's right. the Mormon faith, the Baptist faith, the Methodist, Pentecostal, it's, it's irrelevant. I think, well, I completely agree with you on that point. I, I think that it's received far too much attention. And uh, so let's let's move on to, to other topics that should be getting a little bit more attention. There's been some people who have been concerned about some of uh, some of your statements in regards to what role you see uh, the federal government playing in in people's lives, whether or not that is a uh, whether or not it should be a larger role, whether or not it should be a smaller role. And I want to give you an opportunity to talk about where you see the federal government fitting in and, and where you see its limitations. Well, I think the less government, the better. The, what government really ought to do is to provide sort of a, a framework in which we can live our lives with as much liberty and freedom and with, with as little government as is possible. When government does do something, it just ought to do it well and it ought to do it responsibly. My biggest problem with government is not just the size of it, but the incompetence of it. We haven't sealed borders. We haven't come up with energy independence. We haven't done the kind of things that Americans would expect their government to do. Uh, so it's not that people should just hate all government. We need some. We don't need a whole lot. But what we do have, it ought to be functional, and that's what we don't have. We have a tax system that is in desperate need of overhaul. Um, but essentially, my attitude would be that uh, government should uh, protect its people but shouldn't provide for them. It's up to us to provide for ourselves. Well, let me let me ask you this in terms of education because this was a, a point that came up in the debate yesterday, and, and it was a it was a it was a strange debate anyway. I mean, I don't think people got very much time to really explain explain their answers very well. But in terms of education, where do you see the federal government fitting in into education? This is a, this is a subject that is sort of a hot button amongst uh, conservative Republicans. There's been a lot of them who wanted to see the Department of Education eliminated. Uh, what role do you see? Very limited. It shouldn't mandate. It, uh, in fact, shouldn't uh, set the curriculum. That ought to be done at the state level. I'm a big believer that education is a function of the states, not the federal government. If there is any role at all, and doesn't have to be one, but if there is one, it's to become a clearinghouse for the best practices that are going on in the states so that states who are struggling can use the best practices that are working in other states and they also won't avoid, or they can avoid the mistakes that maybe some states have already made and not try the same failing formula. Um, there's a certain level at which, having been a governor a long, long time, ten and a half years, I understand that governors are going to be very competitive. They're going to try to make sure that they improve. You, you line up their states against others, they're going to say, hey, the guy next to me has got better test scores. What is it that made those test scores better? We're going to do it too. Uh, that's the good thing about the whole concept of federalism. It's why I'm glad Thomas Jefferson won his debate with Alexander Hamilton over whether or not the Tenth Amendment should be part of the Bill of Rights, whether we would have a 
weak central government and strong states or an overbearing central government and very weak states. Fortunately, Jefferson won, and the concept is that we have a limited federal government and that we have power pushed to the states and to the local communities. What do you see as what do you, how do you see No Child Left Behind in that context? Do you see that as a as a, a program that pushes the federal mandate too far? Is it salvageable or is it something that we should move away from? It's very salvageable. In fact, a lot of people don't understand the, the basic reality of No Child Left Behind that the power of it is in the states. It's a national framework, but each state sets its own standards. You can set ridiculously low standards if you want to and say that you achieved your standards because you set them. You determine what they're going to be. Our state chose to set very high standards because we wanted to improve our kids. There's two ways to approach things when you uh, uh, see that you need improvement. If I'm a basketball coach and my team's not doing well, I can lower the goal from 10 feet off the floor down to 6 and everybody can slam dunk, or I can train them to play a better game. Obviously, if you really want them to be champions, you improve their level of play. You don't just lower the goal. That's exactly what I believe we need to be doing in education. You raise the goal. You raise the standard. You don't lower it. And you challenge the play to, to rise to the standard, not adjust the standard to the level of play. Let's move on to a, a topic that really has federal implications. That's immigration. I think a lot of people were surprised when they saw your immigration plan come out and I think they were even more surprised when you picked up an important endorsement this week from Jim Gilchrist of the uh, Minuteman Project, the founder of the Minuteman Project. Uh, first off, let's let's ask about your new plan. Uh, your new plan seems to have um, it seems to focus a lot on border security, and I think that that may have surprised people. Do you? Where are you coming from on immigration? What is, what, is your, what is your core value on immigration? And I've always said that the beginning point and the single most important thing is to have a secure fenced border. Until that happens, nothing else really matters because nothing else is going to work. The second thing is that you have to have not an amnesty or sanctuary city approach. You have to have an enforce the law approach. But it also has to have some rational basis of being functional just to say, okay, we're not going to, uh, allow illegals to be here, then what are you going to do? Well, my plan is a specific one. It says 120-day period. You can go back home. Uh, you get in the back of the line, not the front. There's no cutting. Uh, as this is taking place, the government then modernizes the process so that those who have been waiting in line for seven years uh, would be processed, not in years, but in days or weeks. And those who have gone home, who started the process over, after those in front of them have been processed, then they can get in line and get processed to see if they want to uh, come back, but this time do it legally. Now, some people have said, well, you're taking a harder stand, and you used to be soft. No, let me explain something. Every person who lives in this country ought to live with his head held up and not in fear of each other and not in fear of our own government. We have a system now that illegals who are here sometimes uh, literally to feed themselves are living in fear, uh, living with their heads down, that's not the way Americans do it. But the way Americans ought to do it is by the law. So our law is broken. Fix the law. Fix the border. And then if people do come back, they'll come back with an actual uh, permit. They'll have the legal authority to be here. We'll know who they are, where they are. We'll know they don't have a criminal background or a disease. And we won't have any more here than we can actually handle in our workforce. That's how it ought to be working all along. And that's what our plan calls for. Let's talk a little bit about Jim Gilchrist. That was a surprising endorsement. I think a lot of people figured that if the Minutemen were going to endorse anybody, it might be Duncan Hunter because they've been working with them 
uh, quite a bit on on the uh, on the border down there in California. Yeah. Uh, how did that come about? I mean, how did, did did you reach out to him? Did he reach out to you? Well, I think he began to see that we were trying to develop a real plan. He also saw that of all the candidates that actually had a shot, he thought of winning. That I was the only one that had developed a real plan that it was balanced, and, and frankly, his endorsement uh, was somewhat of a surprise to me. I mean, Jim doesn't agree with me on every aspect, but here's the point: he knew that I had not just some campaign slogan, "I'm going to do this," but I had spelled out specifically how we would do it, and that it was uh, tough enough for the people who say, "Gosh, get tougher," but it was realistic and, and uh, I think, compassionate enough for people who said. Let's just don't grind our heels in the faces of people who are coming here for the same reasons our ancestors did. There was balance. And so we welcomed his endorsement. I know it shocked a lot of people, but I think if they read our nine-point plan on our website, they'll see not only why he supported it, but why they could support the plan and support me. Ed, I'm going to have to go. I've got to go give a speech. As you know, these campaigns never end. So I do, and I appreciate you, you taking the time tonight to speak with us, Governor Mike Huckabee. Best of luck to you, and hopefully we'll get you back uh, maybe after a few successful primary contests. I look forward to doing it. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Thank you, right. Governor Mike Huckabee, uh, front runner in Iowa, and uh, certainly a, a gentleman who, is, uh, who, who followed through on a, on a promise to come back, and especially at a particular point in time when he is one of the busiest men in the in the business here he uh, gave us 25 minutes of his time and that is certainly um, certainly very much appreciated by me uh, you know I'm not endorsing anybody at this point in time I, I don't feel like I have been convinced at this point I don't feel like I have gotten all of the information and I certainly don't feel comfortable with endorsing anybody but I do have to say this uh, I am comfortable with a number of the Republican candidates. This is an issue for me, not of a dearth of choices, but of a, of a, a plethora of choices, if you will. Uh, it, is, it is the fact that there are things about Fred Thompson I like. There are things about Mitt Romney I like. There are things about, uh, about John McCain, even, that I like. There are things about Rudy Giuliani I like. And there are things about Governor Mike Huckabee that I like. And, and, and chief among them, I think, when you're dealing with Mike Huckabee, is you get the sense that he means what he says, and and he is and he feels what he says. He is somebody who is committed to the committed to the uh, to the principles which which are coming out of his mouth. You don't get the feeling that he has mess- he has ginned up a really great message, um, and and he's going to go with that because it's going to it's going to make him a winner. Uh, you don't get that sense from him. Now he's a politician, and maybe that that's exactly what's going on. But I think if you look at Huckabee's record, you take a look at, for instance, the clemency issue, which we brought up earlier. The clemency issue is, he's right. There is, for Republicans especially, there is no benefit to issuing pardons. There is no benefit at all to issuing pardons because every single one of them is a roll of the dice. I think, if I recall correctly, he had issued commutations and clemencies and pardons in excess of a thousand, I think is, is the correct number. And in... And in the thousand pardons, you're going to get a repeat. You're going to find somebody who's going to offend again. I mean, just statistically speaking, you cannot bat a thousand with a thousand pardons. And, and again, this is over three terms, so it's a little longer than most governors have to make those choices, too. But there's no, there's no upside. There's no upside in that. And yet he did it. Now, maybe that was not the right thing to do, and it may not be a good reason. For some people... It may be a reason to oppose him, and that's fine, too. I mean, it's certainly part of his record, and it's certainly part of whatever 
whatever you're going to use to make those calculations. It's fair. It's fair game. But I think it does it does um, it does make good point that this is a guy who takes his job seriously, and who who applies his his own sense of ethics, uh, his strong sense of ethics, I think, to the job that he's doing. So, if if you if you're looking at somebody who can make tough decisions, who can make risky political decisions because he's doing what he thinks is right, then I think Mike Huckabee might be a good guy to to uh, to, to support. And I think at least in, in terms of the campaign, I think you have to give him at least some credit for making those decisions rather than going through there and say, you know, I have a thousand, a thousand of these actions. You had three or four who went back and, and reoffended. Uh, you know, probably more than that, probably a lot more than that if you, if you research them all out. Wayne Dumond is a specific and unusual case. I wish I'd had a chance to talk to him about foreign policy. I know I couldn't get to that question, Christoph, because it was going to come as part of my foreign policy. Um, I was going to talk about that in terms of the Middle East. I knew we were up against the, the clock there, but I wanted to get through some of those other topics. So I apologize for missing your question about whether or not he feels comfortable with using um, nuclear weapons in, in case of a conflict. I, I will tell you this. If you've got somebody... If you've got somebody who is willing to send a whole bunch of people to the, to the electric chair, I'm not sure what they use in Arkansas, probably um, probably um, uh, lethal injection, but to, to, to be executed, uh, I'd say that you probably have somebody who can make that call as well, uh, to the extent that anybody can. I think he's shown that he can he can make the life or death decisions, and that it's going to be something that he is going to struggle with. I think just like he he talked about struggling with the executions, but in the end, he's going to make those tough decisions, and especially the ones that, are, that may not have a lot of political benefit for him. So that's one thing to consider when you're looking at that particular issue. I am I'm not endorsing Mike Huckabee. I'm not, not endorsing Mike Huckabee. I am telling you that this is a, a candidate that I could support in a general election, just like I could support Mitt Romney, just like I could support Rudy Giuliani, uh, just like I could uh, support Fred Thompson and, and maybe even John McCain, even though. Um, with First Amendment issues, those are pretty key to me, and, and I think that McCain's been wrong on that more than right. So those are those are the calculations that you have to make when you when you go into this. And it's good to hear these questions being answered by Governor Huckabee as well as the rest of the candidates. And it's good to get a better sense of who they are. That's the reason why I think interviews. You know, I'm not talking about myself, but interviews, one-on-one -on -one interviews, probably reveal more about a candidate than these debates have. I mean, the debates are fine; they're good entertainment. But uh, and sometimes not even that. If you've watched the last two debates, yesterday and today, you, they weren't even that. There, there was no entertainment value in them whatsoever. But I think when you want to find out more about a person, you have to watch them in action. You have to look at their record, and you have to talk to them a little bit more in depth than asking for 30-second answers to, uh, to 100 different issues. So I appreciate uh, Governor Huckabee being with us. I appreciate you being with us tonight, the people who are live, the people who are going to download this, and the people who are in the chat rooms, and uh, I have to tell you, I really appreciated your, uh, I really appreciated your input. I appreciated uh, conversing with you during this. I want to just say a final thank you to everybody in here. Fly Lady, who's got a great show on Blog Talk Radio, and a huge, huge Yahoo group uh, joined us, and want to appreciate uh, her being here. Make sure you catch the Fly Lady show, Lady Logician, uh, Jazz Shop who is one of our callers today. Thank you for being with us. We'll be back again tomorrow at 2 p.m. Central with Dwayne Generalissimo Patterson for the Week in Review. So be sure to tune in for that 90-minute show. We will be back at that point in time. 
want to say thank you for coming here for the for this unusual time, and we'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>